Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. up on today's show, we know there's some real shortages in the labor force. Where did these workers go and how can we get them back? An interesting premise from Google and YouTube. They're talking about pre-bunking misinformation. Hot topic today. Terms you may use that you don't even realize they're offensive or problematic. We're going to pick up on a conversation we've had before um, when we talk about what's going on with the labor force in our province. And we know that there are some industries that have been really struggling to ramp up and to get enough staff to operate whatever business it is they're running. And the one that comes to mind is hospitality, right? And if you think about this whole pandemic and going back now, uh, more than two years, the industry that was hardest hit would definitely be um, the hospitality industry, if not the hardest hit, certainly among the hard, hardest hit. Um, they were shut down, right? You remember what happened. So, okay, we know that that was awful. Uh, but all those rules are gone now. They, they can operate just as they did before. And they're still struggling, still struggling with staff. Why? What, what, where, where did all those workers go? Well, we're going to find out. We're going to have a conversation now with, um, Charles St. Arnaud, who's a chief economist with Alberta Central. Charles, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Good morning. Yeah, these labor shortages just uh, they won't go away. They continue to persist, especially in hospitality, right? That Would you say that's the hardest hit sector here? Yeah, it's one of the hardest hit in terms, especially that considering it's an industry-wide issue. It's not just specific sectors where it's specialized uh, uh, specialized skills that are required. Are we seeing it in other sectors? I mean, I, I know that we're t- we've had some people talking about what's going on in agriculture. They're having a hard time getting staff. We know healthcare is having problems. So it's not just hospitality, right? Yeah, well, hospitality is probably kind of the main or where the uh, labor shortage is probably the most acute, but in yeah. other sectors, like agriculture, we see it, like the data shows it, and especially in animal, in, in animal production, there's some uh, big issues there, which uh, especially here in, in Alberta, uh, construction. But that in construction, what's interesting is that it's what they call specialty trade contractors, so really specialized jobs. So you need proper training. So it's hard to find those workers, especially when the pool is uh, relatively uh, small. Uh, we're seeing also... Um, uh, high level of vacancies in, uh, for example, truck transportation. Again, mm-hmm. you don't you don't become a trucker overnight. Right. So those are a bit harder to fill. But I, I think that hospitality sector is really what uh, drives the attention. Absolutely. So where did they go? I mean, that hospitality sector when the, when the pandemic hit, obviously, I mean, it was an opportunity, and in some you know, in some cases, sheer necessity to find something that would work during the pandemic when you couldn't work in hospitality. Is that is that the bottom line here? Well, I think there's different uh, factors there. One is obviously the sub- subsequent uh, consequence of the 
repeated wave of uh, of restriction on the sector with the repeated layoffs yeah. of many workers, you decide to go somewhere else where you have a bit more stability in hours, stability in terms of, well, if another uh, more restriction gets put in place, I'm not losing my job. So there's that rational change for the worker that I'm looking for something more stable. Then you have other sectors that were facing uh, labor shortages, and they basically just were offering better conditions. Yeah. And those workers in the hospitality sector were like, well, it's time for me to make a change. I think the pandemic might have changed the appeal of the sector for some uh, for some workers. And we see it in data. A lot of, uh, when we look at what we call the labor force, so people are say that are looking for work in that industry that's been de- it has declined uh since the pandemic so a lot of people are no longer working for, for work in that sector right yeah they've left the question then is is where did they go i mean are there some industries that suddenly are finding more workers available has, has there been i mean i'm sure they went all over the place but are there certain sectors that have picked up quite a few uh extra well, workers well we when we look at where job creation uh, has been uh, in Alberta over the past year or so. One sector that has drawn a lot of more that has drawn my attention uh, quite a lot is uh, when we look at, for example, at what they call the professional, scientific, and technical job. We've seen a very strong recovery there, but that's a, it's a big melting pot of various uh, jobs. It goes from engineers to uh, lab workers to accountants to uh, uh, lawyers. So there's a lot of a lot of different uh, jobs that are related to that, but that sector has seen a very strong growth uh, over the past uh, over the past year. Okay, so there are some growth sectors there. Uh, you know, we we saw a story yesterday where the the federal government has announced a, a hiring blitz to try and deal with the backlog of immigration. Millions of people waiting to have their immigration applications processed. Is that part of what's gone on here? I mean, you speak, you think of the hospitality industry, and there's a lot of new Canadians that work in that industry. Is that part of the reason we're seeing a shortage? Yeah, there's part of that. Of course, the a big a big reason is when during the the whole pandemic, uh, there was barely any new uh, migrants coming to, to Canada, and a rough est- estimates would say that there's probably about three hundred to hundred and fifty thousand potential foreign workers that didn't come to Canada because of the pandemic. That makes that matters for uh, uh, like at the margin at least. And the same in Alberta, we also have to take into account that in the first part of the pandemic, actually Alberta lost population to other provinces. So we had the net migration out of Alberta to other provinces. That has been is starting to reverse. We've seen the trend over the past, uh, almost the past year, where you have more uh, more people from outside Alberta coming to live here. But there's still we still have a deficit there of about three to 5,000 uh, workers that are missing because of that. So, I mean, is it is there a short-term answer? I guess there's not, right? This is going to be, it's going to take a long-term solution to try and come up with a way of addressing this, right? I mean, we can't, there's no magic wand here, is there? Yeah, well, especially when we look at uh, sectors where you need skills, that is really the importance, making sure that people who are unemployed right now have access to training to fill those skilled jobs, which are also um, most likely highly or uh, better paid. So that's one. We need to make sure that people have the uh, the tools to uh, to reorient their career to uh, to better sectors. But also, in in the case of more generic or less 
uh, skilled workforce is making sure that we have we increase the uh, level of uh, available workers, but that means attracting from other provinces, attracting more migrants, uh, and bringing back also some people on the labor force. One thing that uh, we can note in Alberta is that we, we call the participation rate in economic terms. So the share of the uh, working age population that's either working or looking for work has declined since the start of the pandemic. And that's because we've seen the older cohort of Albertans, so those uh, more uh, age 55 plus, leaving the, the, the labor force. Right. So that's also workers that are that are no longer available. Just as we're talking here, I'm getting texts from a few people, and, and, and it's a fair comment in terms of wages. You know, well, if they paid a better wage in the hospitality industry, they would get more workers. To me, it seems almost like a perfect storm. If you're in hospitality, you've gone through two years of hell. You're probably not in a position to start paying workers more, but if you don't pay workers more, you don't get the staff. I mean, is that is it? Is there a way to address that? I mean, is that part of the problem? Well, it's part of the problem, yes, because obviously every sector are competing for those uh, for those workers. So offering better conditions, either better pay or better benefits, yes, will help attract. But the the problem is, accommodation and food services is a very low profit margin industry. Right. So it's very hard for them to offer better uh, better working condition without having to rise their prices. In an industry that, and especially in a context where, well, consumers are relatively, relatively strapped for cash right now, considering what's happening with inflation. Yeah, it, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, Charles, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Really interesting study that came out yesterday, though, that I want to talk about and get some expert analysis of. We've talked before about debunking, right? Now, we've talked about the misinformation that is so prevalent on the Internet and how people can fall down rabbit holes and who knows what they come up thinking uh, at the end of the day. But um, it's a it's an industry and it's a it's big. <laughs> we know it's had all kinds of effects on all kinds of different things going back many, many years. And it just continues to ramp up. And, you know, the, the latest... Uh, that I was reading about has a lot to do with the situation in Ukraine and the Russian misinformation surrounding that. And, you know, how do you stop it? Well, we do a lot of work debunking after the fact and saying, okay, you probably saw this. This is why it isn't true and blah, blah, blah. And we walk everybody through it. And it has, it helps in some cases, I think. I don't know how much. It certainly doesn't put an end to it. But there's a new report out, came out yesterday, done by Cambridge University and Google on something called pre-bunking. 
Yeah, they try and debunk before you even get bunked. I'm not sure exactly how it works, but we're going to find out. We're going to talk with Dr. Timothy Caulfield, a University of Alberta professor in health law and policy and the Canada Research Chair in Health Law and Policy. And I would say the world's foremost debunker. Is that a fair assessment, uh, Dr. Caulfield? I don't know if that's a fair assessment. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, I work with a wonderful international team. How about that? Okay, fair enough. And this is, this is the world you live in. So explain to me what pre-bunking is. How, how does it work? Yeah, and I'm very fortunate to work with a lot of the authors on this really terrific, really terrific study. And one of the reasons it's a great study is they actually did controlled trials like it wasn't just an observational study they weren't just watching what was going on in in the real world they were actually doing sort of randomized control controlled trials to try to tease out is this going to work yeah so what is it what they did is they showed short videos to people um that highlighted the kind of tricks that are used to spread misinformation so things like using really emotional language playing to your ideology um, you know the negativity by is it overly negative uh, personal attacks on on the messenger uh, those are all well-known strategies that are used to push misinformation uh, and if you just show this short video so that, like a minute and a half two minute video to people it sensitizes them it, it prepares them it, it's a pre-bunk right mm-hmm. but then when they see the actual misinformation they're much more critical and less likely to believe it, and also, Shay, really important, less likely to share it, right? So uh, this is good news. This is another tool that we can deploy to fight, to fight misinformation. And by the way, it builds on, you know, those of us in this space weren't really surprised by, by the results. Um, we're very happy about the, the, how methodologically strong this, this study was. But it builds on a body of literature that has told us that pre-bunking, it really can make a difference. It's interesting. So just in terms of the mechanics of it, it's, it sounds like it's something we're all used to. I mean, if you go on YouTube and you watch a video, 99% of the time, you're going to have to watch another video before you watch your video anyway. Usually it's an ad. Would this just replace that then? It's the same concept where before you get to see your video, you're going to have to sit through this one? Well, this is the other good news part of this equation. I think it's kind of a scalable intervention, right? So this is, you know, just testing the concept. And I actually, I personally think they're going to have to think of more efficient ways to do it. Because, like, yeah. I, I, you know, Shay, I don't know what you're like, but two minutes to me, I, that sounds long. It, it, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> so, for sure. And if you can skip through it, you will skip through it. Exactly. So I think, you know, I think we need to make it more efficient. Uh, but the the proof of concept is there. Yeah, that's the idea, right, that we would think of some scalable way to get this kind of, of hint out to the public. And, and I also like it because um, it, it sort of empowers individuals, right? It, it's not about um, deplatforming. It's not about, you know, this is a, a tool that can, people can implement in, in, their, in their personal life. And by the way, there was another study that came out um, uh, three weeks ago, another great study that found that if you use debunking, Pre-bunking and regulation, you can really have a significant impact on on the spread of misinformation. So the message, of course, is we've got to come at this from every direction, and more and more evidence tells us that pre-bunking is part of that broader strategy. Why do you think it works? I mean, that's the question I'm asking myself, because a lot of the concepts that we're talking about here, you know, and how to recognize misinformation, I mean, they're out there already, but they seem to have had limited, <laughs> at least in the in the world I live in, Doc, uh, it, it doesn't seem to be getting through. Why do you think this is more effective than sitting down to people and saying, hey, that thing that you shared is nonsense, and here's why? So I, I think it 
part of it is is the following. You know, there is this other body of evidence that tells us if you can just nudge people to pause, right, just to reflect for a moment, <laughs> you can make you can make a difference because you know, our information environment now is so frenetic, right? It's yeah. just so high speed. So I, I think that that's part of what's going on here. We're we're reminding people to think about accuracy before they engage uh, the content. Uh, so work by people like Gordon Pennycook, the University of Regina, a colleague, he does great work, and David Rand at MIT. They've shown that, that if you just remind people to pause, even for a moment, uh, they're less likely to believe misinformation, less likely to share misinformation. So what this study shows is Let's invite people to pause, but also sort of remind them how they should be thinking about this content. And, and I, so I think that's what's going on. And it's a little broader too, right? Because I know you spend a lot of time pointing out, okay, I just saw this particular item circulating on the internet, and here's why it's nonsense. This is sort of just generally some things, because you're right, there are so many common elements to all of this misinformation. If you recognize those and just take a second to analyze it a little deeper, you can avoid a lot of the problems. Uh, that's right. And I think the other thing that this study did, uh, which I thought was interesting, is they highlighted stuff that often people forget is is part of the strategies. You know, I think we all know that, you know, manipulating science or just t- telling lies, that, that's obvious. But here they're reminding us that, look, is this overly emotional? Is this playing to your ideology? Is this a personal attack? Those are things I think we all often can forget because sometimes we're so... You know, we're so bought into the message that's being spread because it plays to our worldview. We can forget that that's a strategy to spread misinformation. So I, I, that's the other element of this study I think is really important. Yeah, and, uh, you know, I, I, and of course, as you know, Doc, I'm getting all kinds of text talking about how it's propaganda and it's big government control. I mean, there are, it's, we're not, there are some people you just aren't going to reach in this space, right? I mean, they're going to believe something based on how it makes them feel. Regard, they could know it's complete and utter nonsense, but if it fits the way they want, feel they're going to accept it anyway and there's nothing we can do about that is there that's right you know those hardcore deniers those people that are you know it's really part of their worldview those yeah. people that yeah. have bought in into these communities it's very difficult to change their minds uh but th- the thing i like about this is it's not propaganda right we're not telling people what to believe or what not to believe we're just saying hey these are strategies that are used to spread misinformation be on alert for them that's all we're saying, right, yeah. so, and so I, I think it's it's empowering. It's not about censorship. It's not about you know inappropriate manipulation. It's about empowering people to see the world in a more accurate light. Uh, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing, Doctor Caulfield? If we, <laughs> if we could get there, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Right, this is going to be fun, and I knew it would be. And already, the text line is on fire. Um, I played you the Jeff Probst clip from Survivor talking about, hey, I'm not going to say, come on in, guys, anymore. Uh, I'm changing it up to just come on in. And, you know, we're going to be talking about gendered language. And Fernando in Calgary says, hi, Shay, I don't think saying, hey, guys, is gendering anything. Hey, guys, is no different than, hey, folks, you're addressing a group of people. I do think the survivor guy caved. This shouldn't be an issue. Another listener says, I changed to high team for my business meetings. I'd always used guys, but over the past few years, I switched to using the word team. I also use it to reinforce that we are a team. For personal gatherings, I've been using the word peeps. So, like, hi, peeps. I don't believe anyone got upset with me using guys, but for some reason, after seeing it in a Zoom call, I thought about gender challenges and I switched. I'm not a woke person, but it seemed reasonable. 
It is reasonable. And I mean, I know some of you are very, very angry and yelling at me about virtual signaling and woke and all the rest. And I get it. There's a the knee jerk response. You're trained to react that way. Okay. I understand. Take a breath for a minute and think about what you're getting angry about. If one person came up to you and said, Hey, that word bugs me. Can you not use it? That's they're, they're not asking you to do anything. It's not going to change your life in the slightest. You are asked to be cognizant of something that really is the barest minimum ask of you. Don't change anything. Don't change the way you live your life. Just switch that word for another word. I don't, it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it really shouldn't matter to you that much. And if it helps one person, it's, literally the very least you can do. Just think of it that way. Why do you care if you're asked to make this change? There's one good reason, and there's no bad reasons, right? So let's get into it a little bit here. And let's just walk through it, because it's an interesting conversation. We're going to chat now um, with Leanne Son Hing, professor of psychology at the University of Guelph. Leanne, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Hi, Shay. Nice to be here. It's a fascinating conversation, and, I, and I'm really looking forward to this. Now, in, in this instance, we're not talking about terms that we recognize as being offensive or derogatory or, or even outdated or just not acceptable anymore. We're talking about language that we may well be using each and every single day without even recognizing the fact that it is problematic, right? I mean, it's just things that we do without even realizing, hey, that might be problematic for some people. So it's interesting hearing um, your um, audience's responses. Um, I think it's. Uh, I think people sometimes have a really negative reaction when they feel that they're being accused yeah. of behaving in a wrong way. When they think that you know they've got good intentions and and nothing they've been doing wrong, and some reluctance to try to change their behavior, especially if they don't know what they're supposed to change it to, or fear that they might not do it right, or that they'll still be called out and. You know, call out cultures um, a real problem. So, I think that um, it's it's important to recognize um, that change is a process, and that nobody's perfect. And so, if you're interested in making changes to make other people feel more included or to make things more fair for people, um, that it's okay to be on that path to change yeah. and to let people know that you're on a path. And if you slip up, right, you make a mistake, you apologize briefly and and proceed i'm really glad to hear you say that because i like you know the the team that i work with on this show here it's all women there's there's me and three women that put mm -hmm. this show together and when i send a text message or an email invariably i started with hey guys can we do this or hey guys what do you mm -hmm. think about this and i didn't even give it a second thought until this information was approached to me and then i thought about it for a second yeah, you know what? That makes sense. That definitely, it, 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 and my mom texts me sometimes, believe it or not, Leanne, and says, you shouldn't be using guys on the air. It doesn't make sense. But So, I mean, you're right, and I'm going to work at it, but I, I think it, it's important to say, you know what? We're learning as we go here, right? That's right. Yeah, it's a process. Nobody's perfect. I guess another question to ask, though, is, you know, does it actually matter? What does the research show? Yeah. Um, do people feel less included if... Um, masculine terms are being used to refer to everybody and the research does show it does have a difference. So when people 
um, hear words like, let's say, chairman or guys, they're more likely to think of men in those roles than they are to think of women. Um, and then that can influence who they think is appropriate to hold that role. So it can affect hiring decisions, you know, really important outcomes. Um, unfortunately, some gender neutral language, we still actually see that people tend to think of men more than women. Um, and so people have to take, you know, so obviously it's worse to be exclusionary than to use um, uh, gender neutral language, but even gender neutral language, some roles we just associate more with men than with women. And so extra steps need to be taken in order for people to perceive everybody as possibly holding those roles. Yeah, and some of those were surprising to me. Let's go through some of those, like describing, you know, if you put out a, a, a job posting and you described it as mm-hmm. competitive, that could be mm-hmm. problematic, correct? Yeah, so people associate certain words more with men than women, and that's because we tend to associate like traits of being agentic and being performance-oriented and competitive as more masculine and people being more nurturing and caring and supportive of others and warm and being more feminine. Um, and so this comes out in terms of not only um, how people react to job ads, but when people do performance evaluations, what kind of language they use to describe male and female um, employees, and also letters of reference. So people tend to really focus on women's warmth more and men's competence more. Interesting. Okay, so how do we how do we describe? I mean, in the industry that I'm in, I think competitive and even ambitious mm-hmm. in some cases would be seen mm-hmm. as really really good attributes to have regardless of your gender. So, so how do you include that in those kind of conversations without alienating anybody or making anybody feel lesser? So I think um, I, I would say that it's different if we're talking about job ads than if we're talking about performance evaluations. So when using job ads, um, you can do things like using, um, being very clear to refer to um, he, her, and them. Right. So because it's not just men and women that we're talking about. Um, so thinking that everybody would be able to see themselves reflected in those ads and what kind of language can you use to make sure that everyone might see themselves reflected. And hopefully you've got people from different groups um, within your organization who can you know, review the language being used to make sure that it is inclusive. Um, when thinking about writing a letter of reference or um, writing your performance evaluations, I think you can look at it afterwards and say, all right, so would I write this letter differently if this person was a man or a woman or, or non-binary? Is there, does it make sense to say, okay, if you're thinking of these kinds of things, if you're somebody in a workplace or if you're hiring somebody or you're a supervisor, whatever the case may be, and this is on your mind to be um, less gendered in your language, does that mean that, it, it would seem to me it would follow that you would be more thoughtful of inclusivity and not alienating anybody in a broader sense as well. This would put it on your radar in some ways and, and make you start thinking in that way. I think so. Um, and we also have to recognize that, you know, Gender is just one identity that people have, and, you know, we hold multiple identities. And so these um, these uh, identities can intersect. And so, for instance, um, how people might respond to, let's say, a black woman might be very different than how they would respond to a white woman. And so we've got to be cognizant of, of how all of these identities might affect the language that we use um, as we think about and describe others.
And like you say, it's just you start getting in that school of thought and in that mind frame, and um, it, it leads to other things down the road. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say it's a learning process. We, you know, because some people just get so upset. <laughs> the attachment to the words, uh, and we touched on it earlier, Leanne. I, I guess it's it feels is it because they feel like they're somehow being attacked for their choice of words when in reality they're not. It's just a suggestion to say, hey, listen. Think about this for a second and see if we can have a conversation. But I don't understand this. You should see my text line, Leanne. You wouldn't believe what people are saying, how angry they get over this. So I'm not accusing any one person of right. anything in, in particular. But the research does show that, um, in general, people who are more opposed um, to using uh, gender-inclusive language do tend to have either more sexist or more transphobic attitudes. Um, so people who are, you know, keen to take on gender inclusive language tend to be, you know, much more, um, concerned about these issues. Um, but people also show more negative attitudes early in a change process. So for example, right. there was research done in Sweden where they introduced, um, the gender inclusive pronoun of hen. Uh, and they tracked people's attitudes toward the use of this pronoun from 2012 to 2015. And over that period of time, attitudes, you know, at the general level switched from being uh, primarily negative to being primarily positive. So some of it is just a matter of what we are used to, yep. right? We, we and it like takes time. the status quo. Yeah, we like the status quo. Change is always hard. Um, and so it's, it's just one more um, thing that people have to think about. Very, very interesting. Leanne, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining oh. us. Shay, can I can I add one more point? Sure, please. Yeah, go ahead. And so to um, to people's concerns about this just being virtual virtue signaling, virtue signaling, or yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that you're woke. I totally understand that concern. If you if you change language without changing any of the structural uh, sources of discrimination, like within the workplace or right. elsewhere, yes, yes. It's, it's completely useless, yep. right? And so, and it is virtue signaling at that point. Yeah, exactly. If, if we lived in a society where everyone was equal and women weren't paid less than men and men didn't have higher value than women, I don't think people would get as upset or it would have the same um, effect on people to be called guys or babe or dear in the workplace. Gotcha. Right? It's, it's because there are these pervasive inequalities. And so in addition to changing our language, we need to take a look at all of the other forms of inequality that need to change as well. Excellent point. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Leanne, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.